this week on Dig Me Out. With your hosts, Jason Ziak and Tim Minichi. Jay, this week we are joined by a member of the band the jazz june for an interview uh this is hot off the heels uh, a few months ago of our well i don't know if that's hot off the heels but hot. a few months ago we did the uh email roundtable yeah and uh generated quite a conversation with a lot of people not mm. only about the bands that we talked about but what exactly that all mm. meant and we tried to define it with tom mullen and our other guests on that show eric and a few other people so uh, in order to um, continue that conversation, we decided to have uh, a gentleman who is uh, in a different, much different time zone. You and I are in different time zones, Jay. He's in a much different time zone than us, <laughs> which uh, I always mess up, and I did this time as well, how to do the time difference. So joining us from London, England, Mr. Andrew Lowe. Andrew, thanks for coming on the show. Dude, thank you so much. I love the podcast, so it's a pleasure. Oh, Thanks. What's uh, by the way? What's what's London like right now this oh, time of year? Yeah, that's a good question. Well, to be honest, this time of year it's been pretty nice. But it'll be the one thing I say about London is that the weather isn't as rainy as you'd expect it to be, but it's mm. usually overcast. But also, you can wake up on a Saturday and be like, "Oh, it's a great, nice, sunny day out." You think, "All right, well, I'm just gonna have some breakfast and take a shower. And I'm gonna go out to the park." And by the time that happens, it's fucking raining again. <laughs> so, <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that actually sounds a lot like ohio has, so yeah yeah, um, yeah and i know portland's supposed to be the same but it's uh like uh, it doesn't rain a lot it's just overcast but like you know you gotta really get out when it's sunny because it's it's not gonna last long mm. so what prompted the move to london uh well it's been about 10 years now um so to make a long story short i went to kutztown university that's where the jazz dune started. Then right. I moved to Hoboken, like right near New York City. Went to I went to like a recording course in the center of town. Met a girl who was going on an acting course through a friend, and she was British, so we got together. And then we got married, and then moved to London. And it was easy because I had like a, a um, marriage visa, so it was just like, here you go, pay $500 and you can come live for as long as you want. So, um, yeah, it was just like, I'd grown up in the East Coast in New Jersey, <clears throat> New York City, kind of my whole life, so it seemed like a good opportunity at the time. Gotcha. And uh, for those of you not familiar with Cutstown University, it is the home of <laughs> one Hall of Fame wide receiver, Andre Reed. To be honest, who is familiar with Kutztown University? Well, I have Same. I have been since the mid '80s because Andre Reed went there, and uh, I'm a Bills fan, oh, so I always was like, uh, you know, Kutztown. That's got to be a football factory if Andre Reed is is from there. And I think there are some <laughs> other NFL players that actually played there. Um, they actually are, yeah. Uh, that was part of uh, not to digress too much, but uh, uh, oh, cool. Yeah, there's a famous artist from there who I can't remember the name of right now, but Kutztown has, and there's a professional role. Blader. Oh, okay. I don't know those people. So, Kutztown <laughs> is a... But the thing is, it's a tiny, tiny little town. So, to think that there's been, like, actual, you know, uh, uh, NFL football players and 
professional rollerbladers and famous artists to come out. It's like one strip with like buildings on either side of the road for you know for about half a mile. How far is that from Philly? It's like an hour, so that's kind of when I where I went because I was living in New Jersey and I was either going to go north to go like to the ski mountains or I wanted to be near a city, so Philly wasn't too far away. So you could go on like Tuesday night after school to and then make it back in time. So it wasn't too far away, but it was in the middle of nowhere. Gotcha. It's kind of a, it's an art school, like it's mostly an art school, and then it's education. So everyone there is pretty hip. Like it's not a sort of business or sorority fraternity kind of place. Okay, all right, that paints the picture. But yeah, so I ended up here because I was, well, I actually, so the jazz tune kind of was around in like the late, I guess it was late late nineties, something like that. Right. When we started, and we all went to the same uh, school in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. And then kind of picked up playing, and then it was it was cool because there was a lot of hardcore in the areas that we were playing, but we were actually able to play some of the hardcore shows, and it didn't really matter, you know, there was like, like a big mix, like we even played shows with this band, Converge, who's like this hardcore, heavy, heavy metal kind of band, and it would be fine. Um, so it was kind of a cool place to play, because also... There was a few clubs um, near our school, one in Allentown and one in Reading, where like bands like um, At the Drive-In would come through, or Knapsack, or you know, and we would get to open up because they'd be like, "Oh shit, uh, emo band! We know that one emo band from uh, this town. We'll, we'll call them." Like there was, it was just us. <laughs> so like, anytime a band of this style that sounded anything like us, they would put us on the bill. So it was really good. Can we? Uh, so. Um, go back a can you rewind a little bit on your personal uh, sort of introduction to music you know how did you get in what was the sort of album or band that really as a kid made you want to either be interested in music and eventually want to to make it uh, I guess it would have been something like um, I don't like what's the band that made me start playing guitar because I started playing when I was like 15 I think it was I mean, growing up, I was thinking about this the other day. My parents had a pretty good taste in music, so we listened to the Beatles and Johnny Cash and stuff like that. But that never really made me feel like I wanted to pick up a guitar. I think it was when I was listening to, like, Minor Threat and the Misfits when I was, like, in eighth grade, kind of listening, you know, music on skate videos that made me think, oh, that I think I, think it act I can actually do that. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I actually pick up a guitar and make those two <laughs> chords. Mm -hmm. Um so I think those were probably kind of the bands like the Ramones or something that I heard and it was like, oh, the sounds, you could tell it was like simple, but it was really exciting. Like, well, I could do that. So why not, why not try? And I bought some shitty guitar. I actually took um, my first guitar lessons. Some guy in school was like, oh, yeah, you should take guitar lessons with Bruce, Bruce Wacker. I was like, okay. He was totally uh, taking the piss out of me because this guy was like this total fucking like wedding band, long hair guitar guy who would just be like, no, your fingers are in the wrong place. <laughs> like, worst, <laughs> the yeah. worst guy ever who basically come in, you'd play a couple chords and he'd solo over you the whole time. Um, and that was basically <laughs> the lesson. <He'd> just <laughs> soloing over these three chords you knew. And he was in yeah. a band called the Swacker Band. Like, it was just a living joke or something from Mr. Show or something. Um, but yeah, I took like five lessons from him, and I was like, fuck this, I can just learn how to play these three-chord punk songs by myself, so that ended any, like, learning for the, the guitar. 
So, so basically, your, your guitar lesson was you would come in, sit down, and then he would show you how you're not as good as he is, and probably will never be. And then yeah, yeah exactly. you'd, you'd pay him and leave. <laughs> yeah, and then like you know, it's kind of like the guitar store guy where you go and you're like, oh, can, can I can I try this um, Les Paul like as a little kid, and you're like all scared, and he plugs yeah. in, and he's like does some ripping solo and he's like oh no you try and you're like bling bling yeah, bling yeah, yeah. you know <laughs> <laughs> i remember even getting like a guitar set up be like you know get it back and i'm like oh okay and i'll you know take it home check it out and like why don't you plug it in and play it and you're like well <laughs> yeah you're like no <laughs> like i know how this works like you guys are all guitar nerds and <laughs> suddenly it's going to be a like an audition or a performance as i try this guitar out yeah, it's gonna be like riff fest all of a sudden right. with your mom there, with your mom waiting there patiently to drive you home. Yeah, the, the solution to that is you play one single C chord and then go, "Yep, sounds good." Put it back in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you play like Louie Louie. You know what I mean? Like yeah. something you know you can play for sure. Right. Oh yeah, the action's good. We're all we're we're good. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it feels exactly the same. I don't even know the difference, but yeah. Right. Oh, cool. Right. Uh, so, what was your first band? Oh God, uh, I think we had three different names in our like four month existence. First, it was Wake W A K E, like the wake from the ocean or whatever. Mm-hmm. Then it was Regret, which was a really bad band name. It was just really bummed everybody out. Right. <laughs> so then we changed it to Samsara, but I think there's only a band it was called Samsara. So. Anyway, we, we broke up, and then um, then I was in a band with a couple of those guys afterwards called D's Nuts, which isn't really <laughs> thing I'm really proud of. <laughs> Big so, Snoop Dogg fans there? Long history, long history of bad band names is the, uh, is the message there. Oh, my God. So uh, were, the, were you the uh, singer-guitarist in D's Nuts? Or, or... No, I was actually the drummer in D. I was the... The drummer in D's Nuts, Wake slash Regret slash Samsara, was the guitarist. But we had a singer at the time, really good singer for high school, this guy called Wayne, really cool guy, and he would scream his head off. I didn't start singing until, like, the first Jazz June practice when we all, there was, like, you know, bass player, two guitarists, and a drummer who all still the same guys in the band except for Nat, the guitarist. Anyway, just were like, so who's going to sing? And I'm like, uh... I guess I'll try, you know, and that was kind of like my first foray into singing. Right. And that just meant that you were brave enough to try it at that point? Or did you just kind of be good at it? Well, yeah, no, I think it's kind of like the guy, it's like the whoever gets to drive the van. It's like, you know, it's like the lead, you know, everyone else kind of looks around going, I don't, I'm not going to drive. I'm too drunk. You're like, okay, I guess I'll not drink and drive the van it's like that thing it's like i guess i'll be the singer fine <laughs> you know yeah, right. so um but no i'm yeah i mean i think um i used to try to sing a bit when i was like i used to write my own songs at home i have some funny tapes that i've actually lost of stuff of me singing and playing guitar but i never attempted it in front of anyone until the first jazz union practice but that kind of music it was like you know like with Cap and Jazz is like the you know predecessor. You didn't have to even hit any of the notes. You know what I mean? It was like, like <laughs> this is totally. I can just kind of wail away. Mm-hmm. How quickly after you guys actually have that first practice do you go? Well, I guess we should play a show or something. Oh, like fucking four or five practices 
is later. It was like we couldn't wait to get on the show. You know what I mean? Mm. It, that, it didn't. Yeah, it didn't. That didn't occur to us that we should have like a fully formed set of songs. It was like start a band, play a show. That was it. You know what I mean? Because we're all from like hardcore bands. It was all just about like the noise and how much you jumped around and stuff. Okay. So I think we played. Actually, I think our show, our first show, was with really good band from Philadelphia called Franklin in some basement in Kutztown. It was a really cool show, and Adam and his package played as well. Remember him coming with like his little drum machine and stuff. Um, and then, yeah, from there we would play like loads of different uh, house shows mostly, and then like VFW halls in Pennsylvania. I don't think we played our first club gig until like our last tour. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, we we did a tour with this band Elliot. Do you remember them? Remember they're the on, um, name? Yeah. Yeah, they're on the the same record labels as us. So we did a tour with them, and they were the first ones who brought us to like actual clubs because we were supporting them. They're a bit bigger, for the most part. You know, it was just like I remember one time we played like an automotive garage where they just had like the these tires on the floor and two little PA speakers sitting on top of them, like an ankle high. <laughs> um, it was mostly just really, really like put together sort of venues, you know, not meant for music. So it was nice to actually, to actually have a monitor system in front of you and hear back, hear yourself back. So this is, um, after the medicine record. Is that the time frame you're? Yeah. Pretty, yeah. Cause we had that. We, we put that album out and then we did the tour with Elliot and that yep. was sort of our we had all graduated from Kutztown I think the same year pretty much except for Justin the drummer but um, yeah so we just hit off on a tour with Elliot for like three months I think all over the US so in the there's to, a oh, go ahead I was just saying we're supposed to be do a Euro, European tour at the end of it but it got cancelled because they didn't think that we were going to lose the money basically so uh, the uh, Tim and I uh, were reading the oral history that Noisy did on the band, and uh, this yeah. uh, came up in that, and there was a bit of a sentiment that um, the change into larger venues um, was maybe difficult for you particularly. Can you talk about that a little bit? Like, sort of what was the dynamic that was throwing you off and maybe not uh, making it more complicated or difficult than it had previously been? Well, I think it was just the fact that you weren't dealing with people you knew anymore and you were just like dealing with rock and roll promoters and just some of the real business bullshit that you had to deal with. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have to deal with it particularly, but we, because our agent, we had a booking agent at the time who still kind of, uh, still is our manager now, Eva. Um, but yeah, so I think it was just the fact of like, I think it was the Jazz June and then after the Jazz June that you would call up these venues and they'd have these answering machines like, only managers, only bands with managers should be sending demos and stuff like that. So it just became a bit more of like the rock biz. I think that was the the thing I was talking about in that interview. It just got really went from from day to night. Where before you're dealing with all your friends, you you have like a rolodex of people you call in different cities and book yourself. And all of a sudden it was like, I mean, I guess some of the shows are better, but I you know. Some of them are really bad in the fact that you didn't have a great PA, but the people were right in front of you, just like singing at you instead of like being on a stage in front of, and then a gap between you and the people. It just seemed like a little less, I don't know, just wasn't as fun, I guess. It just wasn't, you felt a bit less dis, less connected, I guess. Hmm. And you mentioned uh, even getting kicked out of one of your own shows and missing Built, Built a Spill. What, what's the story there? Oh, man, that... 
<laughs> that was, it was like terrible. Basically, uh, basically, I went to see Bill. Well, no, we opened for Built to Spill. This guy got got us on the bill. Like, shouldn't have put us on. We were like nobodies, you know, compared to Built to Spill for this huge gig at a place in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where like the bouncers are total dickheads. Like. They always have been. I mean, probably, you know, I'm not saying anything about the current bouncers, if anyone from the club is listening, but yeah, they're always just really rough with people. Um, so I think I just got a little bit drunk and was um, just kind of like, I wasn't even being a dick or anything. I was just talking to people in the toilet, and then the bouncer was like, oh, what are you doing? Blah, blah, blah. Get backstage. And I had like a glass that I brought out from backstage. You were only supposed to have plastic cups, but they grabbed me by the, like the neck and threw me back in the room. Like you can't bring bottles in this room. Like really overly, you know, aggressive. They could have just told me instead of grabbing by the, the collar. And then we just went in the back and then they just kept like coming in and yelling at us. And we kept getting all these fights. So finally they just like kicked us out and I, the funniest thing was we tried to go around from the back to the front thinking no one would know. We went out front and all of a sudden there was like eight bouncers sitting out front and I was like, okay, this is where I die, you know? <laughs> like, they're all just going to stomp me to death. But um, actually, it was funny because they were just bummed out that I was talking trash about them. They're like, I heard you said we were dicks, man. What do we even do to you? So that was a really, really strange, strange evening. But um yeah, basically, the the club is kind of known for the heavy-handedness of the bouncers. Huh. Okay. Wow. <laughs> is that a is this a, a Philly club? Where was this at? No, it was in Lancaster. What was it okay. called? Oh, I can't remember. I'll have to tell you later. And you so can that's a bit more rural, end. I'm guessing. Yeah, it's just like, the thing is, they have a lot of big gigs there, a lot of big artists there. It's kind of like a stop-off between Philly and maybe Pittsburgh, I guess. But oh, okay. But it's just like the bouncers are just renowned for like. I mean, there's. I mean, I remember listening. You know, totally unrelated, listening to a podcast of someone in like, I think one of those New York City hardcore bands like Madball, and he was talking about this club. It was like the Crocodile Club or something. Like, I'll tell you so you can say in the intro. But anyway, yeah, it's just always renowned for like the worst bouncers. So um, yeah, unfortunately. But you know what? It's great. Doug Marsh after the gig, I went up to him and like, oh man, I'm really sorry I missed your gig. I only saw like three. Um, songs and then I get kicked out and he was so nice was like oh I'm really sorry you missed the gig that sounds really really unfortunate he was like the nicest guy I've ever met in my life so that was a that was a one positive to the night <laughs> I always well, thought good. yeah I, I, I always uh, he always came across this because of being from uh, the Pacific Northwest as being like a little uh, hippie-ish so maybe that was totally uh, totally exactly yeah it's always nice when you meet somebody that um, I don't know you admire and that they're actually nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It doesn't always work out that way. No. <laughs> no, I mean you'd think that if someone with any bit of success in like, you know, what they want to do, once they got that bit of success, they'd be like, well, I don't have to be a dick anymore because I've kind of, you know, I've established myself, you know, and mm-hmm. so yeah. So he's definitely one of those people. But um, some, yeah, I, I don't know. I don't think I've really. I met one time, I met the producer who did the, um, did all the Ramones records. I won't say his name, but he was a real jerk off. <laughs> but that's the only person I've actually met in the business who wasn't like, had le- reached a level of success that wasn't actually just really chilled out and cool and, you know, they didn't have to prove anything, I think is the big thing. So, Jay Robbins helped with, uh, was it the medicine? 
record. Yes. Um, how how was that? And and sort of when you look back at that, are, are there any things in particular that you learned? You know, working directly with him. Yeah, I mean, the whole thing was really cool because it kind of just happened because I ran into him at a gig. His yeah, it was a Burning Airlines gig in Philly, and I just went over and said, "Hey, we're looking to record a new album. How are you doing records?" And he was really cool, like, "Yeah, just you know, give me a shout when you're ready." And um, luckily, I think the band Blue Tip was supposed to book, you know, had booked a week or two at the same time we were going to record, and they canceled. They're like, he gave us the spot, which is really cool. And then um, being with him, it was just well, he knows like the equipment backwards and forwards like he's he like that room and inner ear i don't know if it's i think it's still there but he knew how everything worked and like every position to put the guitars in you know the amps sound the best and then they had this really cool like wooden drum riser that they put microphones on top of it so the kick drum was extra boomy because which is something that our drummer justin always really liked um and just like yeah, just like he taught me about different harmonies that I hadn't realized were really easy to do and just adding little bits of keyboards and things to embellish little parts. Like, obviously I had heard it in other re records, but he kind of showed us how to do it. So, um, yeah, he taught us a lot as far as, like, getting a lot done in a short amount of time, but also then, like, doing through the editing process, picking what was the best and leaving, you know, being harsh with, like, your editing as well. Now, he had been on, uh, you know, everybody who knows Jay Robbins knows this, he had been on a major label in the 90s. Did you pick his brain at all about that? And, and did you guys have any thoughts? I know that the, the major label sort of enterprise was shifting in the late 90s, early 2000s. But did you guys think about, oh, well, it'd be nice to sign to, not necessarily a massive label, but even like a, um, you know, a mid-major of of some kind. Wait, you mean the Jazz June? Yeah, when you guys were with with Jay, did that come up oh, at all? Right, yes. No, I think um, at the time we were pretty happy because we were on initial records, which was like out of Louisville, and they had a lot of cool bands we really liked um, from over the years, and a really cool like community around them in Louisville, and um, I think you know we always kind of. We always just knew we'd never survive in that world, I think. I mean, we never really talked about it, but I think we're all just never the types to be really schmoozy, like, you know, businessy type people where you'd have to go and... I mean, there's some bands who are really good at it. They could, like, network the room and meet everyone there. They'd be like, oh, that guy over there is from the Warp Tour and blah, blah, blah. And we just never were like that. So I think we always knew we were doomed to sort of, like, never really be too successful. So... I mean, I think at one point there was someone from Colombia, maybe, who was talking to us for a while, but that whole thing didn't happen until a little bit after, as far as Nemo 
world when bands were signing until sort of after we broke up. So it wasn't really something that we even imagined would be possible yet for some reason. So looking at the, again, kind of referencing that oral history, um, I got a sense that there was a sentiment that maybe the, your timeline of the band and the sort of explosion of the emo thing was just maybe misaligned a little bit. Would you agree with that? And if so, uh, if you could go back and sort of change that, how would you change it in terms of the timing part? Yeah, I mean, I think, the, well, the problem for us was that when we had like our, the, the the record after the medicine, which is when, yeah, that's when a lot of the bigger festivals were putting on emo bands and the guys in, on, um, and like Dashboard Confessional was driving around in like an actual tour bus where it started to work. Um, we put out this really sort of like um, experimental record that wasn't any way sounding like it was called uh, it was called Better Off Without Air. We put that out. It was just like nothing like any of the emo sound that was kind of getting popular at the time. So, yeah, I think maybe if we'd put out Medicine... I think actually a lot of people say that if we would put out the recent record that we put out two years ago, then maybe we would have had like that bit of success. But um, again, yeah, I mean, I think it was, um, yeah, I don't know. It was just something that, like, didn't really put it, go into our minds at the time. What was the, uh, uh, there was also a quote I pulled from there. It was, uh, there was never a moment where it just went off, uh, just referring to sort of the, maybe the band going to the next level. What was your, oh, yeah. what was your, like, expectation like where did you where were you hoping that the band could get to where did you when you sort of thought of thought it about next steps and where where you could where you'd want to go what what was that place i think i think we probably wanted to be like of a caliber of a, kind of the bands from chicago at the time who were like tortoise or the sea and cake or any of those kind of like um uh, Southern Records bands and try to be a bit more sort of on the indie side of emo and maybe do things a bit like less punky and a bit more experimental just because we had been playing the same kind of music for a while so I think that was the like level we wanted to hit like as opposed uh, in a like as opposed to like a warp tour slash you know Mountain Dew sponsored you know kind of band that was going on at the time mm-hmm. okay we wanted to be more of like in the we wanted to be wearing like blazers, <laughs> you know, and playing club gigs as opposed to like wearing vans and jumping around a stage at the Warp Tour, which was more like the the emo-y, pop punky stuff. Right. Well, th- that makes sense though, because you know you're at this point what eight or nine years older than when you started, so there's going to be a natural yeah. sort of age progression there. I don't, I don't. A lot of bands if they stay together for that long and put out as much material as you did, they're not going to sound exactly the same or it's rare if they do because they probably have driven that sound to the ground. Yeah. And I mean, I think, um, obviously we're all, um, like avid, like music listeners. So there's always be something new that we'd be trying to emulate in some way, like a little piece, a little part of something from any, you know, a, a, like a sort of broad spectrum of genres of music. So, yeah, I think, like, it's funny, too, because even, like, some of the comments that came out when we put out the record two years ago, um, 
was like, how do you not sound the same? It's like, how do we sound the same? That was 13 years ago. (laughs) How would we actually sound the same? Like, we're totally different people. But people don't, you know, they don't, they don't, they don't know that you've been around, you have been away for 13 years or whatever. You know, they just kind of think like, oh, the last jazz tune record came out then and this, this is, this is the next one. So how does it not sound the same? But yeah, I think it was just like, we just, you know, we always like loved playing with those bands and, and have a lot of good friends in that scene, like emo scene. But I think we were kind of like seeing it go. I it just like to be honest, it just seemed to be found than we had. And those were the bands who were kind of getting bigger and getting signed and getting on MTV and stuff. Which I've not, yeah, you know, I, I like that music too. But we just were kind of doing something a bit different at that point. It kind of reminds me of the. Um, w- we we talked with uh, Stephen Brodsky from Cave In. I don't know, maybe a year or so ago, and there was cool. a theme in there of them, or at least he feeling like um, the hardcore, uh, maybe even a little bit emo for them scene was great in terms of it aligned with the DIY ethic and just you know just getting out there and making music and getting support. But then it quickly turned into, well, are you hardcore enough to stay within this? I guess scene. <laughs> Um, which was an, it's an interesting dynamic. It's like, you know, you're invited into the club, which is great, and then all of a sudden, it's you're you're. It sounds like you're quickly judged on whether or not you should still be in the club. Did you did you feel any of that um, sort well, of uh, double edged sword? Well, it's funny that you say that because yeah, we saw that. I remember like people when I grew up in New Jersey, like the bands I went to see were like super straight edge hardcore bands. And some of the guys, you'd see someone at the show, and they'd be like, hey, where's uh, Derek Bed? I'm like, oh, he just, just hasn't come to the last few shows. He's busy. And like, yeah, but uh, he hasn't been around. I'm like, yeah. Like, I thought he said he was hardcore for life. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, like, you had to go to every show and every, you know, sing along to all the lyrics, and you had to be really signed up to kind of thing. I think when we were in Pennsylvania playing some of the hardcore ish shows and like I was actually in a hardcore band as well at the same time a band called Atari me and Brian from the band um, were both in Atari and yeah there was it was like the first jazz unions a bunch of sweater wearing blah 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 like they're not hardcore and you know it just did become like you were letting everyone down especially drinking for the first time it's like you had to have like a heart to heart with your best friend and be like dude I drank a Zima last night. I just want to let you know before you find out anywhere else. <laughs> so Not a Zima. Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, there was that kind of hardcore thing. But, you know, eventually, funny enough, like, eventually, a few years later, and even now, and at the time, some of those hardcore kids were biggest Jazz June fans, you know, because rem- like, as they're reminiscing about Pennsylvania, and they're like, oh yeah, the jazz and then they listen to us later, like, oh, they're not too bad, but at the time, they weren't allowed to listen to us, because we weren't hardcore straight edge. So, so we won them over eventually. So you mentioned the the new record, which is After the Earthquake, it came out in 2014. Uh, Jay and I both had kind of the same reaction um, in that it sounded like your vocals, uh, the way you were singing changed, which... Uh, could be attributed to a lot of things, but did you notice that that you after that time off between the 2007 compilation and and this album that you were singing a little bit differently? Yeah, it probably was just the big difference was that I used to like write the vocal parts after we wrote the guitar parts, and then I started doing it the other way where I started to write guitar parts based on a vocal 
based on a vocal harmony that I've come up with. So that's probably why it's just like a totally different, the other way of doing it where you like, you know, write a little part in the shower and you write it down and you sing it on your iPhone and then you, then you come up with the lyrics for it and then you put the guitar behind it. You know what I mean? So that's probably the big, that's probably the huge difference, I guess. Yeah. I, I think it's, to me, it was crystal clear that, um, something had changed in the process because the, either that or just a lot more scrutiny around the production because, uh, the guitars felt like they were there to support the vocal and the melody in the song as opposed to the earlier stuff, which was the other way around. It seemed like it was, you know, the noise in the guitars and the performance with some vocals in it. Yeah, well, I think, um, yeah, definitely, because also the way we wrote it, because I was living in London, I would write, like, the guitar and vocal part on an acoustic guitar and then email it to them and they would write their stuff like in their bedrooms and we would you know it wasn't until we got to the studio that we actually played the songs live so I guess because I had started off with the vocal and the and the guitar part we obviously worked on a lot of different stuff it wasn't all that way but yeah. a lot of this stuff was like based on that was the basis of the song mm-hmm so we didn't have a lot of time to like jam parts out and make them longer. And also the producer we were working with, uh, Evan from Intuit Over It, he was very like, why make a four-minute song when you can make a two-minute song? You know, like, just kind of like chop out all the fluff kind of thing. Yeah, I was going to ask about that too. That that it's clear in terms of this is very concise and focused. Um, how hard was that to get to? Um, I know that can be a bit of a, you know, a struggle to to leave parts of songs behind or chop out parts and get it get it I concise. I think it was like a time thing as well because we didn't have a lot of time. We had like seven days or maybe less. I can't even remember. I was like, all right, well, we're just going to have to like come to a decision now because we don't have time to really debate about this. So, And I think there was, what, 10, 10 songs? So, yeah, we had to really make a lot of decisions because a lot of things we hadn't thought about because we hadn't played them together live in a room so we're just sitting there like okay this next song does it have a long part at the end or do we chop that and we just have to make quick decisions so that's how a lot of this this sort of like final versions were that's how we came to them that's really interesting because i I wonder if uh you would agree that maybe that was because you hadn't invested a ton of time playing it together as a you know in a room as a band where if you've done that, everybody feels so committed to all the work that you've put in and just how it feels in the room that when you get to the studio, it's like, well, we can't cut out that part because that's the fun part to play. Like, you know, did yeah, that make yeah. it maybe easier to, to be, you know, objective about, hey, this is, this is just too long. It's not working. I think a lot of it to do, yeah, I, yeah, I had some arguments with, like, the with Evan and then um, Steve, the engineer. But at the end of the day, they were like, I trusted what their opinions, and I knew they'd been doing it for a long time, and they had a real great sort of like, they knew what perspective we're coming from, so I felt like whatever their decisions were, were probably thought through more than I had, you know? So, so I kind of was like, if they could give me a clear reason why we're doing it, I'd be like, okay, I get it, and let's just move on, you know? Yeah, I love how... Um quickly you get to the vocal in most of the songs too you get a flavor of um like maybe a guitar intro or some kind of riff that sets up uh just sonically what the song's going to be about and musically but then in mo- almost every song you get right to the vocal which i think is it's kind of a 
you know, more of a power pop almost like approach, but okay. you still you still have got the um I think the structures which are, you know, a little bit more unconventional. So I, I just, you know, going through the record and A, I love that it's ten songs. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> we get exhausted <laughs> reviewing ninety nineties records that are like fourteen, fifteen, eighteen songs with, with yeah. like hidden tracks and you're like, come on. And they're so. all recorded on tape, so that must have cost them fucking money too, man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, it's brutal. Um <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, so the, the 10 songs, I think, is uh, well done. And I, I just love that you just get right to the point um, on, this, on that record. That's cool. I mean, I didn't, I, I, I haven't noticed that personally because I, but so that's a really cool perspective that you've given me. Like, so I'm going to go back and listen to him. But I'm definitely <laughs> like way into Power Pop as well. I mean, well, Power Pop and then like a lot of the bands that I was listening to, I think when I was writing that song and trying to, writing those songs and trying to find my guitar tone and my vocal style was like Big Star and Teenage Fan Club and stuff like that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really, uh, I really love like Bob Mould and a lot of the Sugar stuff now that I'm sort of listening to more in my later ages. But yeah, definitely love a lot of that stuff. Well, then that makes total sense because that's all those people are, especially like the pe- the power pop stuff of Big Star and Teenage Fan Club are always vocals first, vocals quick, you know, get to the chorus fast. So yeah, that, that all like, makes sense. Like super trebly guitar with like harm, oh, yeah, vocal harmonies and stuff. It's like give me that any day of the week, I'll take it. <laughs> I was going to ask you about the guitar just for a sec because I noticed in some pictures, it looks like you were playing a Rickenbacker. Is that right? Yeah, I used to, and I recorded all the old, older albums on it with a Rickenbacker, but um, not the the record we just recorded was with the Strat they had in the studio. But yeah, I always play one live and have for all the other albums. How, that's an, uh, an unusual guitar for, I mean, starting in the in the '90s, Rickenbackers were not, I would say, unless you were in a Birds cover band, you were not probably playing a a Rickenbacker. I didn't see anybody in the alternative emo hardcore. Everybody's playing, you know, Les Pauls, Strats, maybe even like yeah, hammers. Bucks, but yeah. the one person who did. Fucking Gee from Fugazi. Oh, that's right. So, yeah. <laughs> so that's where exactly where I was like, I want to be him. I want that guitar sound. I'm going to buy a Marshall Half Stack and a Rickenbacker, and I'll be set for life. You still have it? Yeah. I, yeah. I've sold a lot of guitars, but I'll never. Someone will have to pry that from my dying hands. <laughs> <laughs> that's going in the casket with you. Yes, definitely. No one's got that thing. So yeah, I've had so many guitars that I wish I would have kept 
fucked over the years. I've had so many cool, weird ones. Because in Pennsylvania, you drive around these weird shops, and they have all these used guitars, and they have Les Paul Juniors, and all these Marauders, and all this other shit you never heard of. But I got yeah. rid of them all, unfortunately. Marauder, the sister to the uh, the Sonics. Gibson Yeah, Sonic. yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, the song, uh, Nothing to See Here, after... Uh, I think it's the chorus. There's this guitar that comes in, and it sounds like a little off, but I I love it. And I'm just wondering, like, what is going on there? Like, that was that was actually Evan. Like, yeah, I think he just like like took a fucking guitar, put the gain up really high, and then took a slide and just rubbed it across the guitar and like this feedbacky kind of thing. I remember when he did it, it's, we were like, this sounds fucking awful yeah but then in the mix it was like wow that sounds great it was so because like you know all we're hearing is rant, 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 this crazy sound but actually blended in well so that was that was his his idea but yeah it was just a guitar with feedback and like on the with the slide i'm pretty sure yeah the whole part just sounded like it's it's off key a little bit or in some other uh mode or something and that yeah, I could. It's like if not mixed perfectly, it would be awful. But there's something yeah. <laughs> about the way that it's mixed that it brings this whole other dynamic to the that whole uh, previous next section of the song that is it makes it really unique. Yeah, I think that's like the one thing that I wish we could have done more on the last album was have those days of just like making fucking weird noises and putting in the back of our songs. But um, I had to fly back. But I know Evan stayed um, for a few days, and so did Justin, our drummer, and I think Dan even. And they just like did weird little percussion stuff in the end, little keyboard stuff, and just kind of like Evan bashed out a bunch of like backup vocals and stuff. So there was a lot of little experiments going on with Pringles, you know, Pringles cases and stuff like that. When you'd worked on previous records, did you have producers who were making? Um, inputs like that where they were actually playing something or is it more hands off no jay robbins played like a keyboard part and came up with some other stuff little tiny bits like on the record but mostly it was always he just like let us yeah run with whatever and just go in but at the time again we had been playing and touring and we really knew we had the songs finished so when we came with evan it was like uh we played these over online with each other and we need a lot of guidance so please help kind of thing another song from that record that i wanted to ask you about was uh two floors down um yeah it it kind of it almost has like a country thing going on um it seems i think it's really really strong but it's definitely very different than anything else um that i had heard the band do to that point what where, where did that song come from and and uh I was going to say, that was the song I played with like this punk band I was in for a while. I was in this punk band in London called Wake Up Dead. And like, I guess it was meant to sound more of like a, like droney, like narrow, narrow, narrow kind of sound, mm-hmm. like punky kind of thing. Then I guess when I played it on the acoustic, it became, yeah, a bit more of like a, like a country kind of twang thing. So mm-hmm. um, I think that's probably why. But yeah, I think it was funny because I remember during the recording session, Evan was like, I'm not going to let you sing, sing that fucking song like Kid Rock, you know what I mean? Like, it, go, <laughs> <laughs> it can go really country, like, really bad, really quick, 
quickly, so you've got to hold back. So actually, the version that you heard is probably like a less countrified version of what I just became this character. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. So, it's, yeah, that... It's got the, you know, just a little tinge. It's not over, overt, but it's just enough to make it... That combined with the rest of the band just makes it unique, which I think was... Uh, really well done and an interesting direction for the for the band to go. Yeah, that one, um, we did a lot of cool stuff at the end of with the harmonies and guitar parts and stuff that we all just were like, kind of like, oh, I'm gonna try, let me try this next, and just add a lot of stuff, and it just seemed to work. So, you know, like I said, we had, like, really short amount of time, so if we had, like, big bursts of energy, and we're like, let's do this now, and you could just get it done in the first take, then you could do it. But if you had any, you know, trepidation, you'd be like, oh, we don't have time, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm curious about... You've mentioned a couple times about the process being, you know, you're demoing and then sending them off to the different band members. Having been a, a bass player in a band, I know that there's a a lot of interaction that goes on between the drum and the bass in terms of figuring out stuff, in terms of the rhythm section. Yeah. How did those two guys work that out? In terms of, did it go to one? Did it go to the drummer first, and then the bass player filled in from there, or what was the process for that like? Um. It's a good question. I know when we recorded, Justin would just lay down his drums to the click track. So I'd play a scratch guitar track to a click and then sing as well. And then Justin would play his drums to that click track. So I guess Dan would have to sort of fill in his bass lines on top of the drums. I think that's probably... But then sometimes I think we're doing the internet email swap thing. I think Dan would write his bass part and then Justin would add the drums so I guess yeah it kind of happened differently um but those guys have been playing we've all well we've all been playing together especially you know rhythm sections go they we've been playing together for like almost 20 years they kind of just know what step the next you know, you know the next step the, each is making so I think they probably don't I don't know they might have a totally different story Dan might be like I don't know what the hell was going on but um <laughs> I think it feels they have this instinctual thing where they kind of know how to play with each other because despite taking off 13 years or whatever we did play like shows and played together and jammed and stuff so right and and that so that was 2014 um have you guys continued the process of demoing songs back and forth yeah we have been a bit but i've been super busy because i've got a one-year-old daughter so the last year has been kind of crazy so i haven't been able to like sit down and like collaborate on different th- songs i've been writing some of my well i have a bunch of songs that i wrote when my girlfriend was pregnant that i'm now recording that i'll have a bit of time but um jazz and stuff's been like super slow going because we're all just like brian moved justin had a 
fucking fire at his house. I just had a baby, so yeah, we haven't done a lot, but I know eventually we'll get back to it. Uh, that's yeah, adulthood is a uh, <laughs> <laughs> can slow the progress. Of... Don't grow up. Don't grow up. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's the the difficult uh, not difficult, but that's the challenge of uh, as a you know band ages that uh, you've got to deal with all the uh, various adult responsibilities uh that's that's something that's come up with in a lot of our interviews it's become touring becomes a completely different animal you have to schedule that based on times of the year and i remember reading like uh mud honey has a book out um and uh, they had replaced um lucan on bass with uh gee and um he's a nurse so they can only tour when he can get time off <laughs> so they basically oh, go right. on like two week tours every once in a while because he has a full-time job, and the other guys, you know, they're mud honey, so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, take, and then pick one of the members and put him in another country, and it makes it even harder. Because, right. like, if I'm going to go back to tour, then I've got to base it around, like, a f- holiday to kind of see my family at the same time, so then we can't play a lot of gigs. But we end up playing, like, Philly and New York, and then we did get down to Austin, and we played up in Boston. Uh, boston as well on a tour so we've done some gigs that have been pretty fun i have to i have to say i wish we could do more but i think we probably will coming up if anyone still cares i mean <laughs> top shelf was like put out our last album which was awesome so that gave us a bit of um like a bit of a, a reboost with people who didn't know um that we were back you know they definitely helped us out promoting that so um yeah i think we'll hopefully play some some stuff soon but yeah definitely like it's a lot different from when we were all 18, you know, had the same breaks from school and just jumped into the van every Christmas break, every summer break. And, you know, and then when we we're off of work uh, or when we finished school, go on like a four month tour. So definitely makes it harder, but it just makes you enjoy it more when it happens, I think. Uh, what are your thoughts on, you know, part of the um, uh, fun thing about doing this podcast is we've hooked up with other podcasters like like Tom Mullen over at Washed Up Emo and um, in working with him on various podcasts and listening to his podcast, there's been a, a resurgence of bands that would be classified as emo in the last couple years. It seemed like after the, it reached its, whatever way you're looking at it, it's high point or it's nadir uh, in the early 2000s or mid 2000s. It seems like there's a, a return to the more DIY approach to the emo sound. Um, have you checked out any of the newer bands and do you have any opinions on, on the whole like resurgence that's going on? Yeah, I have. I listened to a lot of them, um, and I think it's really positive. I'm really into it, and I think it's kind of like back to the way it used to be when we were playing, and we just put our own shows and play with our friends' bands, and it was like a lot more about um, just having fun and putting out cool music than trying to like have an agent and get signed. So I think it's a really positive thing. And I like a lot of the music. It sounds like a lot of the bands we used to play with, but with a new spin to it. So I'm I'm really digging it aware of for a while and then coming back and playing with the jazz tune and playing with a lot of the bands and finding bands like beach slang we're like oh my god this band's fucking awesome and like hop along and prawn and some of the other bands where you're just like i love this band and i'm glad that like their kids are still out there trying to yeah play that same style of music because i really, really like it do you have the experience now of either getting emails or, or when you've played your your shows having people come up to you the way that you came up to Doug March and was like, oh, I love your band, and 
you know, that sort of uh, awkward interaction? Yeah, I've had a, not a lot, but I've had a few people be like, hey, I've been listening to you guys for the last 20 years, and you helped me through a bad time in my life, or this song was really meant a lot to me. Yeah, that just makes all, like, like the endless making no money and slipping on people's floors and, you know, everything else make it worthwhile because it's like, that's exactly why you do it. So, yeah, I've, I've only had a, I've had a few really nice people kind of grump and say some nice stuff. But then, actually, it's great because, like, Facebook, people write you all the time and just be like, hey, I live in fucking Madrid. I wish I could see you guys, but, you know, you're one of my favorite bands. You're like, damn, that's cool. You know, <laughs> that would, that's another, you know, thing, great thing about the internet i can put out a record tomorrow and tell everyone in japan about it you know what i mean like it doesn't have to go like go through this long process of like people telling their friends and putting it on a cassette tape and handing it to them and putting it on a mixtape you know what i mean like you could take people like 10 years before they even knew your band existed now it's all immediate and you get a little writing you back as well and just being like saying really cool stuff so that's yeah that's a really nice thing yeah, I think uh, I'm, I'm thinking of the interview we just did with John Davis from the Lisa Memory and Super Drag, and I think he's very much in a position of, like, I like to write songs and record them, you know? Uh, touring is really difficult. I have a family, yeah. you know? It's just like, I'm just going to do that. You know, I, there's enough of a name there and a, and a following. It just seems like he's just comfortable just doing that, continuing to put out work, continuing to record and write songs, and just you know, head down that path and, and not, I guess, make the touring part like contingent on the whole thing working. Cause that's just so difficult sometimes at this point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. It's difficult for me, especially if I've got a young family, but I'm just hoping that in like 10 years when they're a bit older, I can be like, all right, daddy's leaving for two weeks. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. That's why I just keep playing my guitar. Right. Just right. in hopes that, like, not that I want to leave my family, but that I can just still do it then. You know what I mean? I can still be like, oh, I'm just going to play a weekend of shows somewhere random and still have those and meet those people and have those kind of fun times. Absolutely. Well, I don't, I don't know that... I gotta get going in a minute just because I've got to get back to the uh, my daughter. She's going to bed soon. But um, is there anything else we want to like? No, this is the perfect round time. It off on. This is the perfect time cool. to uh, where where should people go? Where what's the website? The Facebook, all that kind of stuff. The Twitter. Um, it's all. Uh, I don't know the exact address. The exact addresses, but the Jazz June Facebook. We're on there all the time, and there'll be a. The Twitter link is like at the Jazz June. I think there's underscores, but it's all there through the Facebook page. I think yeah, that's the best place to go anyway. Um, and then I'm gonna start to release some of this solo acoustic-y type stuff that I've been recording on like through the Facebook page as well. So um, there'll be new music that I'm doing, and then I'm sure soon new Jazz June music. We've been all been trying to get it to work, but um, I, it's gonna happen soon. Excellent. Well, sincerely, thank you for spending this hour on your your Sunday afternoon with us. This was a lot of fun to talk about the Jazz June and and get your perspective on the the scenes you're a part of. That you know, Jay and I are kind of retroactively learning about all this stuff. So it's a it's a really entertaining and, and educational to uh, get to talk to people like yourself and uh, and Tom and and Stephen and you guys giving us all the the window into that. Uh, that world that we were uh, that we missed. So thanks. Yeah, and like I said, it's my, my my favorite one of my 
favorite things in the world is to talk about, you know, irrelevant '90s bands with guys in their 30s. So, you know, <laughs> that's right at my. <laughs> we're we're here doing it every week. That is that's our creed. Yes. All right. <laughs> All right, man. Really nice to meet you guys, and uh, hopefully, I run into you somewhere soon. But if not, just check me an email when this is all coming out, and uh, keep in touch. All right, we'll do, Andrew. Thank you. Thank you. All right, cheers. Later. Bye bye. Thanks for listening. You can support the podcast by becoming a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com backslash dig me out or requesting a review for the 2016 season at our request a review page at digmeoutpodcast.com.